I need you this morning to think with me about your body. And I know for some of you that's a depressing thought, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. And for some of you, it's the most blessed thought you've had all week long. You've been thinking along those lines forever. Well, this is what I want you to think about when you think about your body. If one eye begins to give you a problem, what does the other eye do? Begins to compensate for that. If you have one leg that you're hobbling around on that just giving you a fit and doesn't want to cooperate, what does the other leg do on the other side of your body? Tries to make up for it. If one side is weaker than the other side, the other side tries to make up for that. If you have a cut, for example, uh, your body is going to begin to rush blood to the place of that cut uh, to try to begin to facilitate a healing process. Now, you don't even have to think through that. Your body and your brain is already automatically predispositioned to cause those things to begin to happen and to cause the body to try to equalize itself and get back in balance. So if one part's hurting, the rest of the body goes to work trying to alleviate that hurt and get you back on track again. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. Some of you may have doubts this morning the way you're feeling, but give your body a chance and it'll get there for you. Now, the body of Christ, the church, is set up to be exactly the same way. When one part of us hurts, the rest of us are supposed to come around and help that one part get back on track again. When one part's limping, the rest of us are supposed to come alongside and help that limping stop so that that particular member of the body of Christ can get up and get going at it full speed again. That's the way God has called and designed the body of Christ to work. Now, we've been looking at Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, is giving specific instructions, commands to them about this is how you're supposed to function and relate to one another. And in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, which is where I'd like for you to turn, Romans chapter 12, Paul opens that chapter by saying, I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice to God. He says, as you do that, understand that that's going to be an, a sacrifice to Him, given over to Him. It's a living sacrifice. In other words, the energy of your life is to be presented to the Lord. It's going to be holy, that is, it's dedicated exclusively to Him for His service. Now, he says, present your body. Why does he say your body? Because we have to live out serving Him on this earth in our bodies. We can't take our spirit or our soul and put it over here and say, I'll serve Jesus with my soul, and then take my body and go over here and do with it whatever. I have to take my body and use my body to honor Him and to serve Him. So he says, present your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to Him, which is your reasonable service. And then he goes on to say that as we do this, we will come to know and to understand what the will of God is. And then the Apostle Paul moves into a section in Romans, section in Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9, where he begins to lay out 12 plus very specific instructions about how we're to live the Christian life. What are the marks of the Christian life? Now, please follow me on this. We tend to put a lot of emphasis on how to start the Christian life and sort of downplay or ignore 
living the Christian life. So when we talk about what is the mark of living a Christian life, we'll talk about, well, you walk the aisle of a church on Sunday morning and you join the church and you get baptized and uh, you pray a prayer to trust Jesus as your Savior. That's the starting point. But that's not the final marks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What Paul does in Romans chapter 12 is he lays out in careful, specific instructions what the marks of a Christian are. And they're not how well I can walk an aisle and join a church. That's nothing wrong, of course, with doing that, and that's where we get started. But if that's where we're defining the whole definition of what it means to look like a Christian and sound like a Christian, there's no reason that people say the church has got a lot of hypocrites in it. Because you see, what God is trying to produce in our lives and what He wants in our lives is not just that we get started right, it is that we continue right. And it's in that continuance that we begin to look and to sound and to act like Jesus. And that's what He wants for us. Now, Romans chapter 12, notice what he says, verse 9, "...let love be genuine, let it be real, let it be authentic, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good." Love one another with brotherly affection. Again, these are what the marks of a true Christian. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slowful in zeal. That is, don't be lazy with serving the Lord. Be fervent in your spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And then what we're going to look at today, two commands here. Number one, contribute to the needs of the saints. And the idea of the saints is that every person who's decided to be a follower of Jesus is what the Scripture calls a saint, a holy one. We are separated unto Him and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, be in touch with need. Now let's set the context of what he's saying here contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. In the early church with these first Christians, number one, they were ostracized in society. Most of them were very poor. He's writing here to the church at Rome, and we saw this a few weeks ago. In the ancient city of Rome, you had the center of the city where where those who had political power and wealth, the well-educated, etc., lived. Then you had the river that surrounds Rome, and then on the other side of this river, there was where the poor people lived, and great big apartment buildings that were not built very well. And in this community, they would sort of sit and look across the river at where the wealth was and the power was, but they were living in what we would call today poverty. It was sort of an ancient version of public housing. And when the gospel began to infiltrate the Roman Empire and came to the city of Rome, most of the early Christians lived on the wrong side of the river. And so these poor believers are sitting there, and the believers in Jerusalem had it even worse than the believers in Rome had it, because if you lived in Jerusalem, you were ostracized by your Jewish family. They didn't want to have anything to do with you. In many cases, your businesses were boycotted because you were a follower of Jesus. And so a lot of the early Christians were living in poverty. And so he's saying here, contribute to the needs of the saints because the saints had some major need. These folks were really getting ostracized. They were living in poverty. They were in tough shape. And so he's saying, what I want you to do is when you see your brother or sister in Christ in need, 
You're to go to them and you're to help them out. Now this, of course, is a legit need. This is not folks trying to live off of everybody else and take advantage of the love of the church. These are folks who were struggling to get by the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, having a place to live, and all of that was up for grabs for them on a regular basis. And he's saying when you look at them, get involved in their lives. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Get connected and be in touch with their needs. Now the word there where he says contribute to the needs of the saints means to be a partner with them. It is the idea that when I look at a brother and sister in Christ, I see myself as connected to them. I am a partner with them in what they're doing. And therefore, I'm going to go through life connected to them so that when they have a need, I have a need. When they're struggling and suffering, I'm struggling and suffering. Now, we tend to struggle with that in the West because we are trained and conditioned from day one to be rugged individualists. And that is that we are person on our own. We are a self-made person, which is an illusion in the first place. Nobody is self-made. We just like to think we're self-made. But we have this idea that we're just sort of traveling through life on our own. We don't really need anybody else. And the consequence of that is we don't see and understand ourselves as really connected to anyone else. But what Paul is saying here is understand that you are vitally connected to each other. You are partners with each other. So the one one suffers, you're suffering. And so you get involved, you engage with them in their need, and you take what you've got and you try to help them out. Now, the struggle we have in doing that a lot of times is, man, that's going to potentially cost me something. Time, energy, involvement. Their problem becomes my problem. I got enough problems in myself. Why don't you take somebody else's problems on? I got other issues I'm dealing with. Why do I need to struggle and deal with somebody else's issues? First of all, when you do that, we have to trust the Lord that what He has placed in our lives, when we give it, He will honor that, He will see that, and He'll take care of us. See, most of the time when you and I struggle with giving, it's because it's like, man, if I give this, whatever it is, I'm not going to have. But God's going to teach us two very important lessons. Lesson number one, He is more than sufficient and able to replace whatever we give. The second lesson He's going to teach us is a lot of the things that He calls us to give, we didn't really need in the first place. And that our satisfaction is not in getting stuff and holding it to us. The satisfaction in serving Him is receiving what He gives to us and then being used by Him to give it to somebody else. That's where the satisfaction comes. Jesus said if you try to save your life, you're going to do what? You're going to lose it. He says if you give your life away, He says that's when you will find it. Now, I want to just share with you guys and commend you for two things you did this summer in particular in contributing to the needs of the saints, to helping people out. Back in June, we had a mission team from this church, a group of our young people that went to Christiansburg, and they assigned us to Christiansburg Primary School, which works with kids from Christiansburg, most of whom are in poverty. And our job was to wash down the walls of that school and to go in the cafeteria and wash down everything, and then to go out in the gardens around that school and pull weeds and cut back all the junk that was growing down in those, 
in those gardens and get that place cleaned up. And the 1st of September, a bunch of kids walked into that school and walked past clean gardens with a school that looked like it had its act together and walked into a clean, good-smelling environment to get educated because of the difference that the youth of this church made. That's part of what he's talking about here when he says contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, if you look up on the screen there, you see bookshelves with tons of books. You all collected over 700 books, children's books, back in May and June. And in July, when our second mission project, the Southampton Roads Mission Project, Shrimp, began, we took those books and we went to Southampton Roads and we conducted 10 vacation Bible schools and our sports camps. But those books were used as part of reading camps. Many of those books were given to the kids to take home. But the remainder of those books have been used in communities, and this is an example of that, taken from one of those communities this week, to form libraries in some of the poorest neighborhoods of Southampton Roads. In fact, I got a text message this week that the books that you're seeing you got three pictures that you're seeing of some of those books. They're in the Digstown community, Bainbridge Commons, Calvert Square, and Oakleaf. And the text message I got from the lady that's heading this up, thanking us for all these books, said those books have been placed into those neighborhoods. They're going to be forming reading clubs in those neighborhoods and educational programs in those neighborhoods. And that's how you guys have contributed to the needs of the folks in those neighborhoods. And the bookshelves in the main were built by some inner city teenagers. You all know them, uh, Thomas and Justin, who were worked with us, and they've been here with us in church. Uh, they worked to help with a carpenter to build the book shelving. You guys provided the books, and now those kids are going to be getting educated. That's what the idea is of contributing to the needs of the saints and what I want to say to you guys this morning is while you're sitting in here in Rocky Mount in Hampton Roads every day, those kids are being blessed because of what you've done to bless them. You guys are giving them hope because of the hope that you've given in helping them to further their education. And in all those books, if you open the book, on the inside there's a tab that says a gift to you from Rocky Mount Baptist Church. So God bless you for what you did in contributing to the needs of the folks in that area. Now notice the next command that he gives. He says, be in touch, show hospitality. Now I need you to take the word there where he says, Romans chapter 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The word there that says seek to show means to go after something and pursue it like you were hunting for it. Go after it and pursue it like you were going, you're hunting for it. The word hospitality, in our culture we think of hotels and people being nice and giving out cookies to people. That's not the word, the idea of the Greek word there. The idea of the Greek word there is stranger or outsider. He's saying pursue and go after outsiders, strangers. The idea that, he, that Paul is trying to communicate is go after people that you don't know, that are new to your life, 
that are different from who you are. Go after them and see how you can take care of them. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25 and verse 35, Jesus said, I was a stranger and you took me in. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, there's a very intriguing verse there. Hebrews 13, 2, it says, Do not neglect strangers. Some have entertained angels unaware. The writer of Hebrews is saying that there have been times when angels have shown up, not with wings, blowing, you know, beautiful blonde hair and all the crazy ways that angels are presented. But he says they've shown up with what look like human bodies. People have entertained them and didn't even realize they were entertaining a stranger. What are the strangers that God brings in our lives? They're outsiders. They are people who were different from us. They are people who are new to our situation. Are there folks who are at a different place in life than what you and I are? Those are the strangers. And he says, pursue them. Go after them. Now, I want you to think about that. Number one, he says, go after the strangers. Pursue the strangers. And what is a stranger? Stranger, first of all, is somebody that's not like us. Do you know something, church? The more we go after strangers, the more diverse who's sitting in this room is going to be on Sunday morning. Whether it's ethnicity, whether it's socioeconomics, whatever. The more we go after strangers, the more diverse the church gets. Folks who are different from us. Folks who are in a different stage in life. It's always easy to, to, to hang out with people who are our age or got our, who are like us, coming from all, playing off the same plate we're playing off of, the whole nine yards. That's always the easy thing to do. He says, I want you to go over here to people who are not like you at all, who are in a totally different place in life than you are. Pursue them. Go after them. Befriend them. Because that's a stranger that's in your life. Bring them into your circle. And the person who's new to our situation, someone who's brand new, we don't know them, they don't know us. He's saying, go after them. Find them. And be a friend to them. Does that take time? Yes. Does that take energy? You better believe it. Is it a little risky and scary? Of course it is. But Paul says, that's what genuine Christianity looks like. Follow me on this, folks. Genuine, authentic Christianity is not how well I draw a circle around my life and feel so good and righteous inside my circle and say I'm following all the rules and doing everything I'm supposed to do. That is not genuine Christianity. Genuine, authentic Christianity, he's saying, is I step out of my circle and I go to someone else who's different from me and I invite them into my life. And I'm willing to spend some time with them and hang out with them and get to know them and build a relationship with them. And in so doing, I'm becoming like Jesus and less like myself when I do that. That's the idea. And pursue them. I'm the one who takes the initiative. And I'm the one that goes after them. And he says, as we do that, we are pursuing the stranger.
I want to share with you two examples of how I've seen this played out. A number of years ago, when I was pastoring at South Norfolk Baptist uh, in Chesapeake, Christmas Day landed on a Sunday. And we decided that after church that morning, we were going to have a Christmas Day dinner at the church. And we were located in a really poor neighborhood. So we decided we were going to open the doors of the church and say, listen, anybody that's homeless, don't have anybody to be with, as well as our congregation, you just come on in and join us for Christmas Day dinner. Now that meant that a bunch of us that were organizing the dinner and doing the dinner had to change our habits and our traditions and not be in our houses after church that morning doing our thing. We were going to be at the church opening up. I was amazed that day. Our fellowship hall was packed out with people who didn't have anybody to be with on Christmas Day, with folks who were homeless, with folks who were in poverty, that the Christmas Day dinner we offered was the only dinner they were going to have. And so we began a tradition of every Christmas day after that, we would do that. In fact, get in the van and go out and drive into some of the poorer communities and bring the folks in for the meal. But we watched, I had one, one Christmas day, I had a lady coming up to me crying, and she said, if we all hadn't had this meal today, she said, I wouldn't have had anybody to be with. I wouldn't have anywhere to go. Now, we're going to ordain some deacons today, and the reason I'm preaching this passage is because one of the roles of the deacons was to, to lead out in the church and do what I preached on this morning, to welcome the strangers, to practice the hospitality, and to be in touch with folks in need. I had a gentleman in Chesapeake whose name was George Garnett. George taught shop for years at Oscar Smith High School. And George was an outdoorsman, big time hunter. I mean, you name it. You, you take George and drop him down out in the forest, and George is right at home. Well, we were ministering to a whole bunch of boys in our neighborhood, teenage guys, who never left the city for anything. I mean, they just lived in the hood all the time. And so we decided to have a men and boys retreat. And George took over leadership of that, and we took these guys and we went out into a rural setting for a weekend. And we did a bunch of guy stuff with them. We did archery. Now they wanted an offer that we could do rifles. But I wasn't too keen on that because I wanted to live through the weekend. And uh, <laughs> I had one kid beside me doing archery. And they gave the boys the instructions. And so help me, he's holding the bow and arrow... And he turns and starts talking to me, holding the bow and arrow. And I looked at him and I said, turn the thing in the other direction. I thought, you let go of this baby and I'm in heaven here in about three minutes, all right? So turn it and face it in the other direction. But we, we did archery, we did canoeing, and then George would do this outdoor survival routine with them, campfire, the whole bit. But they were strangers to all of that. Strangers to anything other than being in the city... And as the weekend went on, they just started discovering they had abilities they didn't know they had. I used to always be amazed with the archery section because I would watch guys who had never picked up a bow and arrow who inside of 30 minutes were hitting bullseyes. Now that wasn't just about learning how to shoot a bow and arrow. It was about building esteem, self-esteem. It was about spending time with them. It was about pursuing the stranger. One thing I discovered in working with those guys... It's amazing how many young men will not get in trouble with negative stuff if you give them something positive to do. 
and get them under positive leadership. Pursuing the stranger. And when we do that, it's amazing what God is going to do in us and through us.